0: listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the rock and roll show, the radio program where we're going to give away some tickets later in the program to the Toronto RV show that goes from the 20th or pardon me, October 18th to the 20th at the Toronto Congress Center. And we will have a skill testing question and it will involve this horror. Look at this photograph
1: Every Chad,
0: thank you. I have Nickelback news. Twitter has removed a tweet from the president that featured an edited Nickelback music video clip that took aim at former Vice President Joe Biden. The post was removed because of a copyright complaint. It featured a doctored version of the band's 2015 music video Look at this photograph. Photograph. And it shows... Chad, Chad Kroger, holding a photo of Biden, uh, his son, that is uh, Biden and his son, and a Ukrainian gas executive, but that was, it was, it's not the real deal, obviously. Now, Nickelback representatives have not returned any messages seeking comment, and I will only, I promise, I will only do this maybe one or two more times, but coming up on the radio program, a skill testing question, you get it right, you get tickets. But let's get to the election coverage, shall we? This is how you remind me of the fact that we are still in the middle of this campaign. And with another major debate behind them, the federal party leaders are scattered today. They're all hoping that when the dust settles from the French language debate last night, they will have broken the static polls that showed, despite three weeks of campaigning now, There has been little change. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau is in Montreal, where he's expected to meet with local candidates. Conservative Andrew Scheer is in Atlantic Canada. He's got stops in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. Now, Trudeau says Conservative leader Andrew Scheer's criticism that he showed hypocrisy by having two campaign planes. This is one of the things that came out in this debate last night. Well, Trudeau says that this is just a far-right tactic to discredit environmentalists. Shearer, as I mentioned, raised this during the debate last night. Trudeau says the liberals are buying carbon offsets, just like they did in the 2015 campaign. Doesn't matter how many planes I have. I got carbon offsets, you see? He says conservatives, and this conservative attack is a, quote, well-established far-right tactic what we're seeing here from the conservatives is a classic and desperate attempt to distract from the fact that they have zero approach on climate change don't even think it's important that is justin trudeau we will get to andrew shear shortly and ask him andy how come you ain't buying any offsets what's wrong with you what's wrong with you in the offsets but canada's three major federalist party leaders took turns last night attacking the resurgent Bloc Québécois. Trudeau launched hostilities against the Bloc leader Yves-François Blanchet, accusing his party of trying to fuel divisions because of his Quebec separatist agenda. Singh and Sheer piled on, the NDP leader saying Mr. Blanchet wants to return to the federalist-sovereignist debate. I don't think we can have a real discussion about what the possible outcome of this election will be without a better understanding of what's going on in Quebec. And sometimes from this side of the two solitudes, it is difficult to discern what's happening in that province. And to help us do that, I'm joined by Gloria Henriquez, which is, who is a Global Montreal reporter and joins me on the line. Hi, Gloria.
2: Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me.
0: What is there a consensus amongst the pundits and prognosticators about who won the French language debate?
2: Well, not a consensus about who won, but definitely about who lost. And every single newspaper, every single French newspaper cover has Andrew Scheer as the biggest loser in this debate. All the covers have him as the person who was the most attacked last night. It was a pretty tough night for him. And
0: what about uh, the attacks on the block? Did the other party leaders land any uh, blows at all?
2: Yeah, there were a few blows. Uh, Justin Trudeau just basically saying that, uh, you know, the block is a pro-sovereignist uh, party. So definitely um, reviving that debate of of separation, which um, not it's not too hot here in Quebec um, in the past few days. People just don't really care as much as they used to before. But there's still a little bit of like, uh, we don't really want to talk about it. And then, of course, there was Andrew Shear and Jagmeet Singh. Basically, everyone just saying, you know, a vote for the bloc is a lost vote. And... Uh, he, he can't really do much for Quebecers once he's uh, once, uh, if he vote for, for the bloc, basically just trying to say don't waste your vote on them.
0: And as a rookie leader, how did Mr. Blanchard do in the debate?
2: Well, I think a lot of people were very surprised to see him um, sort of like have this tone that was very, almost like a professor kind of toned. He just set himself apart by being um, more, I guess, elegant than the rest of the leaders, by not speaking over them and just, uh, you know, trying to distinguish himself as someone who is more, I guess, mature than the other leaders. So that was something that might have been surprising to a lot of Quebecers because the bloc has been almost in disarray since Gilles Decepte left. Um, The leadership has been, you know really difficult. And so to have a François Blanchet just show that tone that was missing was, was, I guess, impressive for a lot of people.
0: Gloria Henriquez is, is a Global Montreal reporter who has been talking to us about what Quebecers are thinking about last night's French language debate. Thank you so much for being on the program.
2: Thank you. Have a good day.
0: So, maturity. What kind of pitch is that? That'll never work. Being more mature. Hey, let's get to those conservatives. And we did ask this question. Remember, we talked about two planes. The liberals have two planes. Hey, Andrew Shear, the liberals have two planes, sure, but they bought carbon offsets. Why don't you buy some carbon offsets, Andy?
3: Well, our plane is actually uh, using less fuel than uh, the, the the plane that's carrying uh, Justin Trudeau and his staff and the media around. So right there, we're emitting fewer emissions, and we're going... We've. We've decided to get by with just the one plane. Uh, We've uh, taken that decision. Uh, uh, We've found that we've got more than enough space. We can can make do with just the one. And I don't buy Mr. Trudeau's excuse that somehow uh, purchasing some credits uh, excuses him, gives him the privilege to uh, burn more fuel at uh, tens of thousands of gallons per hour or per flight.
0: I don't think you answered the question there, Mr. Shear. It's not about economy. It's not about making sure that everyone only brings one piece of carry-on luggage. That is not the issue, sir. And it just seems that this two-plane thing, again, I think it will resonate with the people that the conservative have already won. <laughs> yeah, Trudeau and his two planes. Hate that guy. But already those votes are already going the conservative way. And that is really going to be so interesting as we get down to the final strokes. And I can't believe that someday, I feel like that line from Apocalypse Now someday this election's going to end. The New Democrats' Jugmeet Singh is in Toronto, returning to areas where he's hoping to take seats back from the Liberals after an extended amount of time in British Columbia. And my point about the Conservatives is how efficient their vote is going to be. Their vote will be very efficient in Alberta. It will be very efficient in parts of this province and rural portions of this province. It will go solidly, solidly blue. But the question really will be, where are the New Democrats? A strong New Democratic Party means an opportunity for Mr. Shear's uh, candidates to sneak up the middle, especially in the 905. So what does this all mean? I just will quickly mention the Greens' Elizabeth May and the People Party's Maxime Bernier are in their respective home promises, provinces today. May's on Vancouver Island, and Bernier is in Quebec. But what does it all mean? Because we have some new numbers. New seat projections now show the Liberal Party have has recovered slightly in the two weeks since those photographs and the video emerged of Justin Trudeau wearing blackface, but not enough as of yet to actually firmly put them in majority government territory. If the vote were to be held tomorrow, the latest seat projections from the Laurier Institute, this is Liz Pop, we use them here at Global News, it suggests that the liberals are close to a strong minority thanks to a small boost in this province. If voters went to the ballot box, liberals would get 158 that is up eight seats from the previous week. The Conservatives would win 136, the NDP 22, and the Green Party and People's Party of Canada remain stable at five seats and one seat, respectively. Now, to form government, remember this: you got to keep this number in mind, folks. 170. That's your key number. Write that down. Put it down on. Actually, write it on your on your hand. You're just going to need that, 170, because that's your key number. And right now, it looks like the Liberals are short of that. But which way is it going over the next couple of weeks? It is going to be very important. And when we come back on the Alan Carter program, we are going to take you to Markham Stouville. That is the site of tonight's election roadshow on Global News as we take a look at the electoral chances of Jane Philpott. Can an independent win there? And what does that mean? And if she can win there, what does it mean overall for the Liberals' opportunity to really squeak from minority into majority territory? Is that in the cards? (laughs) Welcome back to the program. We have some provincial government news. The Ford government apparently canceling its 28 million dollar budget cut to children's aid societies after growing concerns about the ability of the cash-strapped agencies to actually protect vulnerable children in this province. Now the agencies apparently learned in late September when their provincial funding arrived that the government instead of the cut is increasing last year's $1.5 billion transfer to them by $23 million. In an email statement that the Toronto Star has, the Ministry of Children, Community and Social Services, Minister Todd Smith, said that the government decided that it was best to keep funding quote-unquote stable while the government consulted agencies for needed reform. So apparently another turnabout and walk back from the Ford government. We'll stay on top of that for you throughout the course of the day. Let's talk federal election, and tonight we go to Markham-Stouffville on Global News. It's the feature of tonight's Global News Election Roadshow. Now, Markham-Stouffville is one of the most diverse ridings in this country. It boasts a population of about 126,000 people. The riding is very tech-savvy. The city of Markham has the greatest concentration of high-tech and life science companies in this country. Now, the riding was created in 2012. In two elections, voters sent a Liberal to Ottawa. The incumbent is Jane Philpott, former Cabinet Minister in the Liberal government and now running as an Independent after being ejected from the Liberal caucus. In March, she resigned from Cabinet over Trudeau's handling of the snc Lavalin affair and, as I mentioned, was later removed from caucus. And as an Independent, Philpott is going to be challenged by former Ontario Health Minister Helena Jacek. Who's running for the Liberals? Conservative, Theodore Anthony, NDP, Hal Berman, and Green candidate, Roy Long, round out the candidates in this riding. Now, some history. The riding of Markham-Stouffville has only been around for a little while. It encompasses part of the province that was previously included in the ridings of Markham-Unionville and Oak Ridge's Markham. Both of those writings have a history of tight races between liberals and conservatives. In Markham Unionville, the last election saw a conservative. Prior to that, it was liberal for more than a decade. And in the now defunct riding of Oak Ridge's Markham, it was a similar story from 04 to 08. It was a liberal, then 08 to 15, a conservative. Global News producer Aaron Eaton joins me on the line now with more on what we can expect tonight during our Global News Roadshow Hi, Aaron.
4: Hi, thanks so much for having me.
0: So, what do we have on tab? what do we have We have a marching band? Is there what do we have? <laughs>
4: well, we will be at uh, Joseph Street Parkette tonight. We're gonna have a lot of a lot to talk about. So we've spoken to most of the candidates. I think we're, we're four out of five right now. Uh, we've spoken to the mayor of Markham people living in the riding about their concerns with political science professors, you name it. So we've covered this riding from all angles and are, are tackling... We yeah, got the range of what, what there is to talk about there.
0: We got all the eggheads, egg and we actually have some real people, too, <laughs> I understand.
4: some real people to weigh in. Yeah, it's always <laughs> nice to hear from them. And this they is definitely have some firm opinions, that's for sure.
0: And this is so interesting because of having an independent here in this riding. Uh, Jane Philpott is well-liked and has good name recognition, but can an independent win, especially when people are thinking to themselves, well, I, I want to have a hand in who's next in government?
4: Yeah, it's it's really rare for independence to win. It's actually been more than a decade since it last happened in 2008. Uh, but Phil Plot's circumstances are also pretty different. She has the recognition. She's been in cabinet. And uh, in speaking to people there, I know a lot of people respect her and respect her move, but there's also a little bit of conflict there in that uh, some people have trouble Getting behind an independent, they're worried that uh, the stakes might be too high this election, or also that she'll have a, a difficult time actually affecting change if she gets elected.
0: Helena Jasic is a win cabinet minister. Is there a bit of a hangover from that? Obviously, uh, voters punished the win government pretty seriously.
3: We will
4: see. It's it's tricky to tell how these things will unfold because you know the provincial liberals and the the federal liberal, liberals are, are two different things right now, and uh, it'll just be. I think this riding will tell us a lot as to how people people feel about that.
0: Aaron Eaton is a Global News producer and is working on our big road show tonight. And Aaron, I will see you in the riding a little later on this afternoon. Thanks so much for being on the program. See you then. Thanks. All right. Do you fear for your safety when you are walking on the streets of this city? I will tell you that I do. And I think that uh, more and more pedestrians out there, got to have your head on a swivel. You got to be absolutely watching at all times because more and more we see people in cars just pushing the limits, trying to make it there, just being aggressive drivers. And part of that is because the city is just so congested and everybody is on edge. City Council of Toronto in June approved a new Vision Zero plan aimed at eliminating pedestrian and cyclist injuries and deaths after the first plan simply failed to halt a spike in fatalities. Changes include speed limit reductions across the city, these new zebra crosswalks at intersections, designated school safety zones, pedestrian safety corridors, senior citizen safety zones. You know, a transportation study of Scarborough concluded that that area has Toronto's highest rate of pedestrian collisions resulting in death, and that has accelerated over the past decade. As an East Toronto resident, I can tell you, firsthand, it is terrifying to try and cross the road in portions of Scarborough. Factors include long stretches of wide, high-speed roads without any kind of pedestrian crossing whatsoever. Now, so far this year, there have been 45 fatalities on city streets. 27 of the victims have been pedestrians. Toronto Police Sergeant Brett Moore of Traffic Services says actually the pedestrian fatalities are no higher than they've been in recent years. But what has changed is the age of the victims. Of the pedestrians killed so far this year, 81% were 55 or older. In 2017, by contrast, 55% of pedestrians were 55 or older. There are motions being presented at City Hall today, as I mentioned. Among them, targeting heavy trucks in Vision Zero Road Safety Plan. Our Don Valley West counselor, Jay Robinson, will present a motion that asks for a hard look at the way that heavy trucks operate in this city, how to make them interact more safely with pedestrians and cyclists. And this fall is in the wake of that tragic death on September 10th of a pedestrian who was hit by a cement truck at Young and Erskine Avenue. Scarborough Rouge Park, Councilor Jennifer, uh, pardon me, Councilor McKelvey will have a motion asking for ways to improve timing and coordination of construction of school safety zones. And that goes hand in hand with a motion from Beaches East York, Councilor Brad Bradford, who's going to ask the province to enable school bus stop arm cameras. And that will catch motorists who speed past stopped school buses and apparently make streets safer for school children. Joining me on the line to talk about his proposal is Councillor Brad Bradford. Brad, thanks for being on the program. Thanks so much for having me, Alan. Why is it that you think cameras will actually increase safety?
3: Well, I think that the enforcement part is something that we've had challenges with in the City of Toronto when it comes to road safety. Uh, last week uh, we did a three-day traffic blitz. We issued 1,700 tickets and 625 of those uh, were in school zones. So that's really problematic. I know I hear from residents all the time about concerns around traffic safety in our neighbourhoods, particularly around schools. And this is just another tool using the technology that's available uh, to, to hopefully in improve driver uh, habits and and make it safer for everybody.
0: I, I think there would there not be some rollout difficulties with this? Why not go with more increased blitzes as opposed to trying to install all of these cameras? Plus, you got to go to the province for this. And last I checked, the city's relationship with the province was not the best.
3: <laughs> well, you know, we, we try and work with all levels of government. And I think that that's That's key and that's important, but actually, in April of 2019, the province did enact legislation under the Highway Traffic Act to allow for stop-bar cameras to be installed on buses across Ontario. What hasn't happened is the enabling legislation for the camera installation um, to actually use the cameras to their full potential. So right now, the regs require a police witness to appear in court for the evidence to be used, and and that obviously creates a, a bottleneck and a huge barrier for the policy to be most effective. So, we're really just asking the province to speed up the rollout uh, of the stop-arm cameras. Again, the the legislation has been enacted. Now we just need the regs to make that actually uh, a reality for us here in Toronto and, and make it more effective. Now,
0: does that regulation apply to the application to have cameras put on streetcars as well? Is that the same regulation? It's. It, it would be separate but it is
3: uh, it's about ex- expediting those regulations so the the streetcar one as I understand which we did at TTC that's separate um, this is specifically for school buses but it's the same challenge like you know we we need to make it easier for our police to track that data and have this evidence uh, right now they you know they effectively need to show up in court with a USB data um, with the evidence on it and present that and so we're asking them to simplify the process and make it uh, easier for us to really capitalize on the investment and the technology, and
0: ultimately it's going to make our school zones uh, a lot safer. Obviously, that motive is laudable, but Mm -hmm. I ask you this question, between cameras on school bus arms, cameras on TTC vehicles, cameras at red light uh, intersections, so on and so forth, We've come to a point where it's a police state, and there's a camera everywhere willing and ready to snap your picture and send you a fine.
3: Well, you know, I don't really think of it as a police state. I think that enforcement is one piece of the equation. So is education, and so is road design. And so we, we have a lot of challenges. I, I think that people would like to see more enforcement. They would like to see more traffic blitzes uh, across the city. But the reality is we, we can't have officers out on every street corner, um, you know, in every corner of the city. And, and using this technology, you know, is cost-effective from our end. And I think it's also enforcement really does help uh, uh, curb bad driving behavior. So it's kind of when I think about road safety, it's really those three pillars. It's education, it's enforcement, and it's road design. Uh, certainly, if, if you're not breaking the rules, running red lights, running past stop signs uh, on school buses, then it's not a problem. And the majority of people don't do that. But there are some bad actors out there. And, and in my view, there's really no excuse for running past uh, a stop arm on a school bus in a school zone. Uh, that's inexcusable. So, if, you know, $450 Ticket, if that helps curb that behavior then that's something you know I really support.
0: Brad Bradford is the Toronto counselor for Ward 19 Beaches East York and has presented or I guess is going to present the motion today. Have you done that already?
3: It's, it's going to be up after lunch.
0: All right thanks so much Brad appreciate you being on the program. You bet Alan. Bye-bye. And just to recap Mr. Bradford is putting forward a motion to equip school bus Arms, the arms that come down to say that you're not supposed to go past with cameras to be able to snap your picture. If you go past, you violate that, you get yourself a ticket. Here is what's making news. This hour, three youths accused in sexual assaults at St. Michael's College School pleaded guilty to a number of charges during a court appearance today. Each of the three boys pleaded guilty to a count of sex assault with a weapon and assault with a weapon, while one of the boys also pleaded guilty to a charge of making child pornography. They cannot be named under the Youth Criminal Justice Act. And the charges stem from three incidents that occurred in the fall of 2018. St. Michael's College School is a private school near Bathurst and St. Clair. It became embroiled in the scandal last fall when allegations of group sexual assaults and bullying came to light. The allegations initially resulted in seven youths being charged in connection with the incidents. Here's one of the lawyers for the accused speaking outside of court.
4: Today, three very strong youths stepped up and took responsibility for their behavior.
0: Three strong youths stepped up and took responsibility. Our Catherine McDonald is following that story. We will continue to cover that for you on Global News Radio throughout the course of the day. I want to take you to Paris, where four people were killed at a Paris police headquarters when an employee attacked them with a knife. That's according to French authorities in a sudden outburst of violence that has shocked the French capital. A French official says the deadly attack was carried out by an administrator at police headquarters. The assailant shot dead. It appears to have begun in an office and continued elsewhere inside the large compound across the street from Notre Dame Cathedral. The motive unknown. the employee allegedly responsible for the violence apparently never posed any problems before. Tom Rivers, ABC News, at the Foreign Desk. From Paris to a frightening development in Michigan, where a fourth person has now died from a rare mosquito-borne virus. The death in Calhoun
5: County, Michigan, marks the ninth human case of eastern equine encephalitis in the state. According to the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, 33 animal cases have also been reported, all resulting in death. Triple E has a 33% fatality rate among humans who contract the mosquito-borne disease. 90% of horses die. Health officials in Michigan have been conducting aerial sprays in areas where the disease has been contracted. They've already treated more than 128,000 acres. Ryan Burrow, ABC News.
0: And on August 19th in Ontario, the Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs notified that it had a confirmed case of what we were just talking about there, EEE, it's known, in a horse located in the Leeds and Grenville area. The unvaccinated mare was euthanized. Now, triple E is not transmittable between horses. To people, but obviously that is a huge concern as we're seeing what's happening in Michigan. Tesla electric car sales have gone up. Tesla said it delivered 97,000 vehicles in the third quarter, the most in any quarter in
3: its history, but it's still well short of the pace CEO Elon Musk wants for the year. Musk set a target of 360,000 to 400,000 cars for 2019, and to reach that, Tesla would need to deliver about 105,000 vehicles over the final three months of the
0: year. The announcement did not include financial results. Those are much anticipated, after Musk said the company would be around the break-even mark for the quarter after first-half losses of more than a billion dollars. Brian Clark, ABC News. Do you believe the information that you read on political flyers? A recent all-candidates meeting in Beaches, East York, the PPC candidate, I was moderating, she claimed that lowering immigration numbers would help housing affordability. That brought a chorus of boos. Is it true? Well, go on the internet. It's all over the place on the veracity of the claim that immigration impacts housing affordability in this country. How about this claim? That 50% of illegal border crossers into Canada have a criminal record. Look it up. You can find it online easily. You can find it in some conservative candidate's campaign literature. Is it true? Jeff Semple is a senior correspondent with Global National who has been covering campaign disinformation and joins me on the line. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Alan. Great to be with you. Let's begin with that claim about illegal border crossers. True?
1: False, actually. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I think that might surprise some people, given just how prevalent that little fact has become. Um, yeah, if you Google it, I mean, if you type into Google the question, how many of the uh, border crossers to Canada have criminal records, one of the top Results on Google will will uh, is a headline from a CBC news article from a couple of years ago that says that nearly half of border crossers to Canada have criminal records. Now, that long story short, basically that article was originally citing a union rep for the Canadian Border Services. He had mentioned that uh, around half of the half of these border crossers had criminal records. He says that he was talking about a very small group around three or four over one weekend that that comment was taken out of context but it has since taken a life of its own and in fact this week we saw it turn up on some campaign literature a campaign flyer that's being set sent around and uh, arriving in mailboxes of voters in the riding of Markham Unionville by the Conservative candidate there, Bob Soroya. The flyer claims that around half of these border crosses have criminal records. The real number, Alan, according to the documents that we've pulled, official government documents show that the actual number is less than 1%. It's around 0.3%. And yet, you know, if you Google it, if you look at campaign literature that's being landing in mailboxes this week, uh, you know, a lot, it's leaving a lot of people confused.
0: And quickly, Jeff, this just speaks to the fact that once something is out there, it is very difficult to pull it back in.
1: That's right. The union rep who made that comment initially a couple years ago has has retracted that statement. CBC has retracted that statement, but the article is still out there and the information is still circulated. It's been reposted and retweeted thousands of times online.
0: Jeff Semple is senior correspondent with Global News. You can read his story in his ongoing series about disinformation on the campaign trail on globalnews.ca. Jeff, thanks so much for being on the program. sports. That's what I want to do. I want to talk about, uh, did you watch any Leafs last night? you enjoy a little bit of that? Well, John Tavares said recently that he used to dream about playing for the Leafs when there wasn't a C on his jersey. Now, the 29-year-old has surpassed even his own childhood expectations. Tavares named the 25th captain in franchise history Wednesday. That was in a pregame ceremony. Uh, And then, of course, they went on to play the Ottawa Senators. And then to basketball, Uh, Who is the fun guy now? The L.A. franchise, the Clippers, have recently released a video of our fun guy talking about, you're trying to be a cool dude. You know who I'm talking about here, Mr. Leonard. Now, here is the clip of Kawhi Leonard. This is where the Clippers try and basically take our bit and recreate it. You tell me whether you think this was going to go viral. It's a
1: make or miss league. Make. Miss. (laughs) <laughs> it's a make-or-miss league, baby. That's
0: weak. That's weak. Baby. No, not going to happen. Not going to happen for you. It's going to be so unfortunate when the dust settles on this season, and we're champs back-to-back, and Drake is doing playing back-to-back, and they're like, Kawhi who? I don't know. Oh, did you hear this one? I like this one. An anonymous bidder has paid three grand for the clip-on rat's tail worn by Ewan McGregor in Star Wars Episode One: A Phantom Menace. Quite possibly the worst Star Wars movie ever made. In fact, the worst Star Wars. There's no question. Not quite possibly. The auction had a listing that described the significance of McGregor's braid, which he wore while portraying Obi-Wan Kenobi in the 1999 film. The listing for the braid is as follows, quote, Different colored bands would be added to these whenever a Padawan progressed in their training. The braid shows signs of production use, including glue remnants at the top, minor wear, and a loose strand of thread. Somebody somewhere has got three grand too much. Money. That's what I'm saying right there. Are you planning to see a movie this weekend? There is a big opening in the movie world. Joker is coming. Here is what the Guardian newspaper in the UK has written about the movie. This year's biggest disappointment has arrived. It emerges with a weirdly grown-up self-importance from the tulip fever of festival award season as an upscale spin on an established pop culture brand. The film loses your interest with tedious and forced material about Joker's supposed triggering of anti-capitalist, anti-rich movement with protesters dressing as clowns. Joker's own criminal and serial killer career baffingly fizzles. This is from the New York Times. Much of the criticism of the film has centered on the question of what effect it will have on people such as incels. David Ehrlich of IndieWire called it, quote, a toxic rallying cry for self-pitying incels. And unfortunately, in this city, we know a little bit too much about incels because of Alex Manassian in The Tragedy on Young Street. This is from Slate. Sam Adams wrote that no matter how emphatic Phoenix's performance is, it feels like a risk to feel too much for him, not knowing who might be sitting next to you in the theater, using the resentments on the big screen to justify their own. This is from The A.V. Club. For all its novelty and craft, Joker is more a stylish stunt than anything else. It pantomimes 70s grit, wearing it like an extravagant vintage suit. It is very much a story of self-actualization through violence. It lends it a certain undeniable topicality, and maybe that's what the jury at Venice, which handed the film The Coveted Golden Lion, saw in it. A cracked mirror reflection of the hostility and resentment that colors so much American horror. The massacres committed by armed young men. Chris Janselowitz is a Global News online journalist and joins me in studio. Chris, you've seen the movie. Yes,
5: I saw it last night. The assessment from what I just read for you there, does that ring true with what you saw? I have to say that uh, everything you read is pretty spot on. Uh, all different descriptions of the movie, but all accurate Uh, It felt like uh, we were supposed to have great sympathy for this guy. Uh, He goes through every imaginable, horrible thing you could ever conceive of abuse. uh, He has a severe mental illness, all these other things. And what the saddest part is that abuse and mental illness are used almost as reasons to justify and rationalize murder.
0: Much of this concern here is that this may be triggering. Yes. That this may be triggering for those we saw in the Manassian uh, police interview an extraordinarily difficult to watch uh, interview where he talks about being exposed to these ideas on 4chan and then deciding to go and carry out this horrible allegedly go ahead and carry out this horrible act. When you watched this movie, did that did that work itself in your
5: mind? Did you think, who is watching this beside me? Absolutely. Uh, the weirdest part about this screening was I've been to, you know, a screening a week for 10 years, and I've never been asked for my identification. I've never been uh, given a wristband to go into a movie screening, and last night that happened. Um, at first, I was put off, but then I realized, you know, this is for security reasons. This is for to make sure that I'm not some sketch bag coming off the street, and I'm going to go in here and do something horrible. And as I'm watching, I'm thinking, my God, if I was a 13 or 14 year old with an axe to grind and I'm watching this movie, I might get the idea. And I'm not saying that anyone, you know, people are sheep and that they're going to be, you know, morons and just believe everything they see. But you never know, especially as like a teenager or someone impressionable, what you could get from this movie. What I understood the message to be is that if you suffer enough, uh, if you are beaten down enough by the world, then you have every right to go out and kill people. That was essentially the message of the movie. The violence was
0: justified in your mind. Uh, the, the the
5: violent act. Of the the movie. The narrative of the movie was that violence is, in some cases, yes, justifiable. They consistently brought up his mental illness. They consistently brought up his pat his uh, childhood abuse, almost as reasons to allow someone to go off and kill people. I want co- to I want to co- I want to come back
0: to this AV Club quote because this really grabbed me. It that perhaps that what the
5: jury at Venice saw was a cracked mirror reflection. Of American horror. Right. And that's the ultimate question. Did the director Todd Phillips purposefully uh, put this together this way as, as a message, a reflection of society? I would say the recent interviews he's been doing over the last week kind of indicate no, uh, he most certainly did not do this on purpose.
0: Because there will be those that will bring up other movies, for example, Bonnie and Clyde. Remember when that came out, extraordinarily violent. It is seen as a hallmark of new cinema and a reflection of the violence that was pervasive in American society at the time. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, we didn't have the situation of triggering, but can you relate
5: it on that level? Um, You know, yeah, it's it's. A, a kind of a, a representation of what we're seeing in society, sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's people that are angry, there's people that are upset. And this whole mask of it being against the rich, I'm not sure whether that's really convincing. Uh, you kind of have to see it for yourself. The first half of the movie, you can be more sympathetic to the character, it's only as things start getting really messy and devolving that you stop the sympathy just it just stops
0: all right we're going to leave it there because we don't we don't want to spoil spoil it obviously for people and people will make up their own minds chris janselowitz from global news online thank you so much for talking about joker anytime Uh, i will just quickly tell you as we finish the program our skill testing question for our folks who are trying to get themselves to the rv did we get anybody call people called did we give away did we give tickets away did people know the answer? That the answer was?
1: Look at this do, makes me laugh.
0: The greatest oral crime ever committed in this country. That is the answer. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to pile on with the Nickelback hate. But come on. Nickelback. I'm out of time. I will see you again tomorrow at noon. But please, if you can, join me tonight on the Global News TV thingy, Majaber, where I'm live for our election roadshow live in Markham tonight talking about Jane Philpott's chances of being elected as an independent. That's 5.30 tonight on Global News and then simulcast here on this station at 6 o'clock. Until tomorrow, thanks so much for spending some time.